ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the US and Britain launch airstrikes on more than a dozen Houthi targets in Yemen in retaliation for attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Also, the editor of a major newspaper in Papua New Guinea describes the mayhem of this week's riots. And no Rafa, no Roger, no problem. Fans are excited as they arrive for the Australian Open. The weather is great, the whole tournament is great. I'm super excited. I'm prepared to be here all day, every day. Not just the matches, also the practice courts and all. You'll see me here all the time. First tonight, there's a new battleground in the conflict in the Middle East. The United States and Great Britain have launched airstrikes against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen, south of Saudi Arabia. The strikes are in retaliation for the Iran-backed Houthis' attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. This report from Oliver Gordon. As British and American military personnel readied themselves for an incursion into Yemen, a collection of 17 judges shuffled into the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Following three months of bombardment and tens of thousands of civilian deaths, South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide. Assisting the South African delegation is Irish lawyer Blinia Negrali. Despite the horror of the genocide against the Palestinian people being live-streamed from Gaza to our mobile phones, computers and television screens. The first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. Israel categorically denies the genocide accusation and will present its defence later tonight. It will do so under the shadow of a new phase in the conflict unfolding in the Middle East. Because after weeks of Iran-backed Houthi attacks on ships passing through the Red Sea, the UK and US have retaliated. Striking Houthi rebel targets in Yemen, Tomahawk missiles and fighter jets were aimed at logistics hubs, air defence systems and weapons storage locations. US President Joe Biden has issued a written statement. These strikes are a direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea, including the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles for the first time in history. And he hasn't ruled out further attacks. I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the free flow of international commerce as necessary. The strikes have the support of a coalition of countries, including Australia. Defence Minister Richard Miles says Australia's support came in the form of personnel in the operational headquarters. These are very important actions. The actions that have been taken today, supported by Australia, are about maintaining freedom of navigation on the high seas. They are about maintaining global trade. And that is completely central to Australia's national interest. The military assault comes just a week after the White House issued a warning to the Houthis to stop their attacks which are forcing shipping companies to change course and take longer routes. After that warning, there was a brief pause in the attacks. 
But on Tuesday, the Houthi rebels fired their largest ever barrage of drones and missiles at vessels. That escalation pushed the US and UK into a corner, according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Malcolm Davis. I think the US had to strike in the end. Uh, Biden has held up as long as he possibly could, uh, to the point whereby actually he was being criticised for not responding. Uh, and you know, after repeated strikes, and this was the, the 27th strike okay, by the Houthis on international shipping, after not responding after 26 strikes, uh, um, uh, he was coming under intense criticism for effectively undermining US credibility. But he's not expecting too hawkish a response from Biden, particularly not this year. The one thing that the US won't do, I think, will be get uh, be to get drawn in on a ground war in the Middle East. So you won't see US ground forces go into the Middle East. I think that would be political suicide for Biden in an election year. But I do think uh, the US won't accept Iran uh, having hegemony in the Middle East uh, region, and nor will Israel, quite rightly. But comments made prior to the attack suggest the Iran-backed Houthis won't back down easily. Houthi leader Abdul Malik al-Houthi. We will not hesitate to do everything we can, and any American aggression will never go unanswered. The response to any American attack will not be at the level of the operation that was recently carried out with 24 drones and several missiles, but rather much greater. As geopolitical tensions simmer, the implications of hold-ups in the Red Sea are playing out in the business world. Electric car company Tesla has announced it'll suspend most of its production at its German factory near Berlin for two weeks. It says due to attacks in the key shipping route, the components it needs to make its vehicles are stuck out at sea. Oliver Gordon reporting. Well, for more on the strikes, I spoke to Dr Peter Layton, a military strategy expert and visiting fellow at Griffith University. He's also worked with the US Defence Department at the Pentagon. The Houthis have been ramping up their missile attacks. Now, you'll recall the Houthi originally tried to have these shipping attacks as a part of the Gaza war, and they said that they would attack only Israeli vessels or Israeli-owned ships. Now, that hasn't happened. The Houthis have spread their attacks across pretty much everybody, and especially in the last week, they've been launching quite a large number of missiles and drones towards US and British warships. Given that expansion of the attacks that you just spoke about, is it fair to say it's really Iran calling the shots here in terms of what the Houthis do? Yes and no. Iran certainly provides the missiles and a lot of uh, financial support, etc. By the same token, the Houthis have agency and they don't necessarily follow what Iran tells them to to, uh, do. The Houthis have been losing prestige lately, as they've been, if you like, losing the civil war in Yemen. So to a certain degree, this is a statement by the Houthi that they are still um, an important player in that particular part of the world. The Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, has said today that Australian personnel have been in operational HQ for these strikes, but he won't say exactly what they're doing. What role do you suspect the Australians are playing? They'll be somewhere in the targeting chain, either sort of before or after the strikes. So if they're before, they'll be looking at the imagery captured by, say, uh, satellite systems, trying to find where the possible targets are, working out what these targets could be, making sure the targets conform with the laws of conflict. If it's after the strikes, they'll be doing some assessment about whether the strikes achieved what they set out to do. Do you think Australia should be committing equipment or or personnel to, to shut down the Houthi attacks? 
the Houthi attacks are now moved on from being sort of associated with the Gaza war to being a much bigger thing is now associated with the freedom of the seas, if you like, as far as using the seas for merchant traffic. However, the Red Sea is still a long way away from Australia, and if we send a warship there from Perth, it would still take a, a couple of weeks or more to, in fact, get there. So this is hopefully the end of this rather than the start of this. So we'll have to wait and see what sort of what happens next. Are you confident that this will mark the end of these Houthi attacks? With the Houthis, no-one's ever confident because they keep coming back. I would think that this will certainly influence their thinking. Bear in mind that the Houthis are using, if you like, missiles and drones and high-speed boats, etc., from the ports in uh, southwestern Yemen. So there's no land border here, if you like. So what Houthi are using can be relatively easily destroyed. So I'm certainly hoping that this leads them to uh, change their mind. On the other hand, what I think is more likely to happen is that as Iran is mixed up with this somewhere, that the Iranian-backed groups in Iraq will launch some drone attacks against US forces in Iraq. So do you think we're going to see an escalation and indeed expansion of the conflict in the Middle East? An expansion in a, in a horizontal sense, if you like, in a geographic sense. Now, bear in mind that for the last three months, the Iranian-backed militia in Iraq have been mounting the occasional attack against US forces there anyway. So if you like, they'll keep on doing that, but they'll uh, have some words that say they are doing this in retaliation of uh, hitting the, the Houthi. So I think it'll still keep bubbling uh, are you long, if you like. The question is, I suppose, is if the Houthi don't take the message or, or don't take the hint and they do have a large number of drones and missiles left, then they may now launch a large-scale attack. Is there any chance, do you think, that the United States or the UK are going to have to send ground troops into the Middle East anytime soon? I don't think so. I think they'll be perfectly happy to use airstrikes or, or missile strikes. Dr Peter Layton, a visiting fellow at Griffith University. This week's riots in Port Moresby and Leigh stunned many in Papua New Guinea. The chaos erupted after police stopped work to protest because they'd been underpaid. 16 people were killed in the unrest and shops and businesses were looted and set alight. A state of emergency has been declared by the government and will run for a fortnight. Observers of PNG politics expect the Prime Minister, James Marape, will face a no-confidence motion when Parliament sits again in February. Matthew Vari is the editor of The Post Courier in Port Moresby, PNG's oldest daily newspaper. Mr Vari, I know you've been out doing your grocery shopping. How are things looking in Port Moresby today? Today, it's calmed down, but you can sense the, the urgency in the population. Everyone's worried about the availability of store goods and at a time like this when major warehouses were also bent down in the process of the looting that took place there is that sense of urgency it's very orderly but you can still feel that there is some form of panic and it will only grow as the days go by i know your newspaper this week declared wednesday's events as the the darkest day in port moresby were you shocked by what happened yes we were the intensity of especially the population in their reaction to the opportunity that was presented with police standing down as services was very shocking for us. We've always known about the, the pressure cooker that this issue of, especially unemployment, settlements, urban drift, was always a big issue for us. But it, we all felt that it would come out to something like this. It's just that the manner and the timing in which it turned very nasty was so quick. We had one of the mobs just outside the newsroom trying to attack one of the wholesalers that's down the street. We had police shooting into to disperse those crowds with police also 
outnumbered. Those were a few elements who were protecting business, but the rest stood down and they really tried to prevent the looting in our part of the area. And we were sitting in our content, sitting on the floor at some point just to avoid any of these shots ringing through our building. But we stood tall and um, it was very traumatic for me because of my, my staff, and my reporters, and we did go through because you have to inform the nation of what's going on. So do you think it was a case of opportunists taking advantage of the fact the police were off the job protesting? Yes, it pretty much was that. Um, because, I mean, there are bigger issues at hand, but the very fact that it also reminded everyone the importance of law, law enforcement and the, the state discipline forces, that they saw that they were also standing. We had situations where even police were frustrated with the, the situation of their wages. We're also encouraging looters. We even saw it in, you know, before our very eyes, certain elements of the police were also encouraging during that particular Black Wednesday that took place. So how are people in Port Moresby who weren't involved in the protest feeling then about that police involvement, that almost inciting the riots? The public is still not happy with what the cops have done, but at the same time, the public also understands that the government has to be very responsible in the way you know, pays its officers, especially those who uphold the very fabric of society, which is law and order. The Prime Minister, James Marape, has warned Papua New Guineans that other countries are, are watching the unrest, investors are watching what's happening in PNG. How damaging do you think this week's events are for the, the country's international standing? It's very damaging. Um, you have businesses that have been loyal to this country for such a long time. They built up their companies with that loyalty in mind, and they provided so many jobs to our local people. And it was we have Sam Mahesh Patel, who looks after one of the largest retailers in CPO group of companies, who was brought to tears because he saw what happened, how Papua New Guineans could attack the livelihoods of other Papua New Guineans, whom he employs thousands of them. And it was just a sad day. An investment uh, with a narrative that's going out that we are expecting a lot of research projects, it really hurts that reputation. Matthew Vari, Mr Marape was elected Prime Minister in 2022. What do you think the political repercussions are going to be for him and the government? We all are aware of the vote of no confidence. It's one of the most sensitive times in PNG politics, and especially when it comes to that period of time, which is expected in, in February of this year. This is not a good start for him, and it could have been handled differently. And um, We already have six members within the government um, ruling coalition that have now resigned from the coalition. And it could there could be a cascade of ripple effect from this with other members in the coalition or within the ruling party who may also move. Uh, Mr. Marape is confident. He's been confident for the last few weeks, but this does put a dent into that confidence moving forward. So it will be an interesting few weeks uh, heading towards the vote and all confidence period. Matthew Vari, the editor of the Post Courier newspaper, speaking to me there on a bit of a sketchy phone line. Apologies for, for that. Uh, he's in Port Moresby. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Coming up, excitement building in Melbourne, head of the Australian Open. Taiwan's presidential election is on tomorrow and China is watching closely. Beijing's plan to eventually take over the self-governed island has been a prominent issue in the campaigns of the three main candidates. But for many young Taiwanese voters, China's threats aren't their biggest concern. Instead, they're hoping the new president will tackle economic issues like slow wage growth and housing affordability. Wing Kuang reports. 
26-year-old Elfin Chang lives in Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. His role as the managing director of the Taiwan Youth Association for Democracy has given him a pretty good idea of what young voters want. He says in previous elections, the relationship with China was high on their agenda. I think for young voters, we care about the cross-trade relationship, which is from Taiwan to mainland China relationship. And we Taiwanese think that we have to be very strong to the China government, that we are one independent country. Otherwise, we are going to be invaded or we are going to face the unification. But Alvin Chang says China is no longer the biggest concern for young voters. Economic issues are front and center. After the pandemic, we are facing a very, very high housing price and low salary. So I think most of the young citizens still care about cross-trade relationships, but also we care about the domestic issues. Low salary growth has been an issue in the past two decades. Raymond Young is chief economist at ANZ Greater China. He says Taiwan's stagnant economy has left few job opportunities available for young people. So extent that uh, many young people, like 10, 20 years ago, when they're looking for a career, they love to find some offshore opportunities, even including you know, moving to mainland China and following their manufacturer there. But now, under the current geopolitical situation, they are not too many, you know, we consider moving to mainland China and also as well as uh, Southeast Asia. Then they probably need to look for uh, domestic opportunities. And that's how currently, this, I believe that the Taiwan labor market is undergoing a inflection point. He says part of the problem is that Taiwan still relies heavily on manufacturing. But in recent years, a lot of manufacturers have shifted to other Asian countries with cheaper labor. But Raymond Yuan says there are new opportunities for Taiwan if it can capitalize on growing global demand for high-tech manufacturing something is proven extremely good at. Because of the geopolitical pressure, apparently that many R&D activities and high-value-added activities are starting to shift back to Taiwan. And this will definitely create some opportunities for young and technical, skillful university graduates. Coming up with a way to solve these issues is seen as crucial to winning the youth vote at tomorrow's election. The presidential candidate for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, Lai Qingde, has promised to create 20,000 jobs. The opposition's candidate, Hou Youyi, says he will increase the minimum wage. Ke Wenzhe, who's from the newly formed Taiwan People's Party, says if he's elected, he will offer tax reductions for companies who give pay rises to workers. They are not lacking jobs, but young people definitely not just want to have a job, but they also want to have a career prospect. That's something that the policymakers really need to address. This new focus for young voters on economic issues doesn't mean they've completely forgotten about the potential threat from China. Alvin Chang has grown up in an era of democracy, and he wants it to stay that way. I was born in 1997. We have our first elected president in 1996. So our democracy is very young. Chinese people are not going to have war with China. But yes, China maybe is going to invade Taiwan. We didn't ask for the war. We asked 
for a stronger Taiwan, there will be no advantage if China really declare a war toward Taiwan. Alvin Chang from Taiwan's Youth Association for Democracy, Wing Quang reporting. A severe weather warning for Queensland's far north has been cancelled, but the region isn't in the clear just yet. A monsoon trough hovering over northern Australia will bring more rain to sodden catchments in the coming days, and locals are worried the clean-up after last month's devastating floods will be delayed. Elizabeth Cramsey has more. After destructive floods last month, heavy rain overnight gave residents in far north Queensland something to worry about. Jeremy Blocky has a tropical fruit farm at Cape Tribulation. It's very saturated out there and I just went for a quick walk out the back of our house. The creek, it's full of silt, so even this relatively small sort of wet season rainfall of 135 mil has actually started to fill that body of that uh, creek bed, so... We do worry about any further falls. He's still dealing with the impacts of ex-tropical cyclone Jasper and the floods that swept through afterwards. Yeah, day 30 today since essentially the ferry closed on the 12th of December and uh, so 31 days um, today. Um, There have been, as you mentioned, a few days where we've been able to get access, but it was only by four-wheel drive, limited hours um, under escort across the range. Um, So that you know, a few people were able to uh, take advantage of that and uh, get to Cairns. Well, some people have gone to Cairns, some people have had to get flights, whatever. But, uh, you know, essentially we're still isolated. A monsoon trough looming over the country's north is bringing heavy rain to the region. Laura Bokel is with the Bureau of Meteorology. We've seen dozens of gauges record over 100 millimetres in the past 24 hours to 9am this morning. So some really sort of widespread areas that saw quite a bit of rainfall. In terms of where we saw the most rainfall, there were a few smaller pockets that did see totals in excess of 200 millimetres per hour. Um, So the highest was Stewart Creek Valley, which recorded 269 millimetres of rainfall, and that sits along the Daintree River. Uh, And then we also had Daintree Village uh, that recorded 234 millimetres in 24 hours. A severe weather warning for Woodgill Woodgill to Port Douglas has been cancelled. But Laura Bokel says that doesn't mean residents are in the clear. As we start to see that heavy or intense rainfall fall and there is more of a risk tonight and into the weekend uh, that we will start reissuing those warnings when we start seeing those rain rates increase. Dean Clapp runs Crocodile Express River Cruises from the Daintree Village, another community still working through the clean-up. Well, we've got such mass destruction here in the village of... Uh... Uh, down near the jetty, uh, that uh, there's no way that we could clean that up in a short time with what we have available. So, yeah, anyway, that's to come. He's hoping the village will, if needed, be able to use a new backup generator designed to service the phone tower in longer-term power outages. Unfortunately, it wasn't much help in the cyclone. The cord supplied or the to attach to the tower from the generator was the wrong type and of course no one could get here and bring us another one so I'm not sure whether that's been remedied or not. After last month's disaster would-be tourists were encouraged to visit the region to bolster the local economy but with more rain on the way some tourists have been left with a sour taste in their mouths. 
Michael Kerr is the mayor of the Douglas Shire Council. Yeah, you can't plan for these things. Our monsoon season usually kicks in at the end of January, you know, so it is a little bit early in considering. Um, but, you know, we did have the access routes and we had the boat system available so people can get in and out. And I know once they get here, they're having a great time because everything's still happening that they could do here. The reef boats are still going out. As wet weather stalls the clean-up, authorities are urging residents to make sure they're prepared for more bad weather. Here's Cairns Mayor Terry James. Now, we are only very early in the cyclone season. It doesn't finish until the 30th of April, so you really do need to be prepared. And there's a lot of uncertainty about this monsoon trough that's developing up in the north, uh, potential cyclones, a lot of rain. We're expecting rain, heavy rain, this weekend. And that's exactly what happened last time. The Mayor of Cairns, Terry James, ending that report by Elizabeth Cramsey. Tennis fans are heading to Melbourne for the first Grand Slam event of the year, the Australian Open. To make sure there's plenty of time to complete matches come heatwave or storm, the tournament's getting underway this Sunday rather than the traditional Monday start. And for the first time in a quarter of a century, neither Roger Federer nor Rafael Nadal will be on court at Melbourne Park. This report from Luke Sidham-Dundon. Very sad. I'm very sad. The contrasts of play, like you've got the finesse and the, the beauty of Federer and then that explosive energy from Nadal. It's going to be very disappointing to not have them. As fans arrive in Melbourne for the qualifying rounds of the Australian Open, most were wishing two legends of the game, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, were here too. Some didn't realise they wouldn't be. Yes, it's my birthday today. I'm turning 18. Happy birthday! Thank you very much. So, in your lifetime... There has not been an Australian Open without Nadal and Federer. This is the first. How do you feel about that? I didn't know that. I'm, just, I'm very new to the tennis. German fan Fabian has fond memories of the pair. When they just enter the court, it's just something different. I, I feel like the, the vibe is just a bit different. Still, their absence won't rain on his parade. I'm from Germany, you know, the weather is horrible, so... <laughs> Here, the weather is great, the whole tournament is great. I just, I'm super excited. You'll see me here all the time. <laughs> Louise Fleming is a former Australian tennis player and coach turned commentator. She remembers the first time she watched Rafael Nadal play in the early 2000s. I was at the US Open and I was watching this guy just rub his back against the back of the wall and I thought, wow, he's playing deep but he's, he's hitting with such incredible force. And I sat next to someone and that guy said, uh, look, that man there is going to be the number one player in the world. Louise Fleming says the pair have had an outsized impact on the sport, particularly in Australia. The first time that they played was, um, I think that was in 2009. Come <laughs> All of that after three and a half hours. It just keeps getting better. I think they've left an incredible legacy in terms of character, how to present yourself as an athlete. So who are the players looking to fill that hole in Melbourne? We're looking at Sinner and we're looking at Carlos Alcaraz, of course. He's the number two player. Then you've got Zverev and, of course, Djokovic is up the top. You've got Tsitsipas, we've got Medvedev. I mean, there's so many great names. And, of course, we can't forget our little Alex Demonor as well. He's just chopped the heads off three top ten tennis players. Some think it's a lot harder to get a read on the women's draw. 
Former New York Times tennis correspondent Christopher Cleary has been following the Open for decades. Igus Fiantek number one, is really powerful now and in a good position. Elena Rybakina. We reached the final against Rina Sabalenka last year. Looked really, really good in the lead-up in Brisbane. Coco Goff won the U.S. Open. Get up, Coco Goff. You just won the U.S. Open. And there's no forgetting former Australian Open champion Naomi Osaka, who's made a nostalgic return to Melbourne. Just going into the locker room and having the same locker as before, I think little things like that really make me happy. And just being able to hit on Rod Laver and kind of just realise like I've been able to win twice here. While Australia's chances of winning the title in either draw aren't great, the Australian women have five players in the final round of the tournament's qualifying event. Louise Fleming says that means we'll see more Aussie women on court this year. We've got some really good players coming through. We've got some young players that are really starting to step up. One player who hasn't booked a spot is Arena Rodionova, Australia's top-ranked woman who's accused Tennis Australia of snubbing her on purpose after she was denied a wildcard entry to the tournament. On the ABC's tennis podcast, just-retired Australian player John Millman labelled the decision a shambles. You can't be Australia's top-ranked player in, in female tennis and be overlooked. I am a bit baffled. One decision that is being welcomed is a move to get players to bed earlier than in previous years, after a match last year between Andy Murray and Thanasi Kokonakis dragged on until 4am. Tennis bodies, the ATP and WTA, this week announced an 11pm deadline for matches to begin at all tournaments and restricted the number of matches that can be played each day. So with even fewer late nights and a couple less stars, it's still very much the same Australian Open. And it's anyone's guess who'll be there in the final round at Rod Laver Arena. Luke Sidham, Dundon. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Sparks. Technical production by Lena Elsadi and David Sargent. I'm Samantha Donovan. The PM team with Sam Hawley will be with you on Monday evening. Thanks for your company this week. Have a great weekend. Uh-huh.